This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Recycle by Eurosport a retrospective series on the most extraordinary riders, races and stories in cycling history. Recycle is written by Felix Lowe, narrated by me, Graham Wilgos, and produced by Pete Burton. In our previous episode of Recycle, we swung back to 1965 when Tom Simpson, backed by a motley crew of Brits, outkicked Rudy Altarg in the finale in San Sebastian to become Britain's first world champion. This time out, we recall the team masterclass that saw Stephen Roach crowned world champion in Valach in 1987, becoming only the second man in history to secure cycling's triple crown following his victories in the Giro d'Italia and Tour de France. Here's how Roach capped a stellar season with a rainbow jersey thanks to a little help from Sean Kelly and the Irish underdogs. The Irish team that went to Austria in 1987 might have been small, but it was one of the strongest ever fielded by the Emerald Isle at a World Championships. With Martin Early and Paul Kimmage in support, Stephen Roach and Sean Kelly were carrying the torch for the Irish. Now riding at the peak of their powers, both men had already won bronze medals at the Worlds. Kelly at Goodwood in 1982 behind Giuseppe Cerrone and Greg LeMond and Roach one year later, in Altenriem, behind Ardry van der Poel as Le Monde solo to glory in Switzerland. Twenty-five years earlier, Shea Elliott had finished a distant second behind his Saint-Raphael teammate Jean Stablinski in Salo de Garda, Italy, to take the silver medal. But no Irishman had yet worn cycling's fabled rainbow jersey. After winning the 1987 Giro d'Italia in controversial circumstances and then doubling up in July's Tour de France, Roach was pretty worn out by the time the Irish team arrived in the Austrian city of Valach. On what was deemed to be a sprinter's course, Kelly was seen as the main focus for the Irish team, with Roach very much the plan B. After all, 
only one man had ever won the Giro, Tour and Worlds in one season. And Stephen Roach, for all his class, was no Eddie Merckx. To say Roach's Giro Tour double was unexpected is an understatement. He had finished on the podium behind Bernard Eno and Le Monde as a 25-year-old in his third tour in 1985, but in the season before his Annus Mirabilis, Roach rode as a domestique for Carrera teammate Roberto Vicentini in a maiden Giro he failed to finish, then limped to Paris an hour and a half down on Le Monde in the tour. A chronic knee injury dating back to a high-speed crash in a six-day track event in 1986 was the root of Roach's ills prompting the Irishman to describe that 1986 tour as entering a dark tunnel of pain. The next spring, Roach was denied victory in Liège-Baston-Liège by the Italian Moreno Argentine in what would be the closest he ever got to winning one of cycling's five monuments. Victory in the subsequent Tour de Romandy confirmed his fine form, and the Irishman entered the Giro as one of the favourites. There was one rather large obstacle, however. Roach's teammate at Carrera was the defending champion Vicentini, who received the Italian team's backing in their national race. After winning the prologue, Vicentini wore the first Maglia Rossa before the Dutchman Eric Brueking took over. Roach then enjoyed 10 days in pink after Carrera won the team time trial, relinquishing the lead to Vicentini after the Italian won the Stage 13 individual time trial. So far, so good for Carrera, whose two-pronged attack was reaping the rewards. Then came the controversy. The 15th stage to Sapada saw the race enter the Dolomites. Roach launched an attack, distancing his teammate. Despite orders from his team director to sit up for Vicentini, Roach pressed on. Finishing in the lead group, Roach took over the race lead that afternoon as Vicentini plummeted down to 7th place, more than three minutes down. This apparent act of treachery incurred Roach the wrath of both his Carrera management and teammates, not to mention the Italian Tifosi. Vicentini attacked Roach on numerous occasions in the final week of the race, but was unable to crack his teammate, who capped his winning ride with victory in the final time trial as he became Ireland's first ever Grand Tour winner. Two months later, in the Tour, Roach memorably fought back on the climb to La Plan to limit his losses to Pedro Delgado as the commentator Phil Liggett delivered his now legendary cries of And just who is that rider coming up behind? That looks like Roach. That looks like Stephen Roach. It's Stephen Roach who has come over the line. He almost caught Pedro Delgado. I don't believe it. That effort required Roach to be put on an oxygen mask and he was even taken away by ambulance to a local hospital before being given the all-clear to continue the race. Roach completed his victory over the Spaniard by cutting the mustard into Dijon with a strong time trial performance that saw him wrest control of the yellow jersey on the penultimate day of the tour. The small, quiet man from County Dublin had only gone and done the double, following in the footsteps of the likes of Coppi, Oncadil, Merckx and Eno. The knee injury had raised doubts over Roach's ability to perform at the top level, while his fallout with teammate Vicentini in the Giro had cast, at least in the eyes of the Italians, a shadow over his character. But there was no denying that Roach was ticking along nicely ahead of the World Championships. As the Irish writer Colin O'Brien, author of Giro d'Italia, the story of the world's most beautiful bike race, says... Roach is often characterised as this treacherous chancer who won races that he shouldn't have won, 
but he had already come close in the Worlds a few years before, and he'd been on the podium before, in the Tour. He was a punchy rider who was great at taking advantage of the situation on the road. Rather than characterising that as cynical, I'd say that it showed an intelligence that he was a really good judge of what was happening around him, particularly when he was on good form, and also of his own abilities. Prior to the World Championships, Roach and his Irish teammates took part in a number of criteriums in Ireland, including one in Cork, where the man of the moment bashed his bad knee in a fall. Despite some apparent struggles for motivation after his tour win earlier that summer, Roach was still confident enough he could put in a good turn for his friend Kelly, whose strength suited a course that Eddie Merckx had predicted would be won by a sprinter. By contrast to Roach, Kelly had enjoyed a rotten campaign in 1987. At the beginning of the year, his director sportif Jean de Grabaldi, the man who had first identified his talent and with whom he was very close, was killed in a car crash. Saddle sores then forced him out of the Vuelta just three days from the finish, while he was in the Mayotte Amarillo. Then, at the Tour, not only did Kelly crash out in Stage 12 without a win, he watched at home as his countrymen propelled himself to superstardom with victory in the world's biggest bike race. At this point in his career, the 31-year-old Kelly had won four of the five monuments, a record six consecutive Paris-Nice titles, and another would follow, and multiple stages on both the Tour and the Vuelta. To have sat at home injured and watched another Irishman wipe out everything he had ever done with one triumph must have been unbearable, Paul Kimmage writes in his seminal book, Rough Ride. If Kelly was in agony, then Roach was very much in ecstasy. For years he had played second fiddle to the king, but every dog has his day, and this was Stevens. While the two were friends both on and off the bike, that's not to say they didn't have their moments. For all their chumminess, tensions had appeared in their relationship earlier that spring when Kelly took advantage of a roach puncture to take the yellow jersey off his back in the penultimate stage of Paris-Nice in March. This led to a minor falling out that took weeks to repair. But Ireland's two leading lights were united not only by a strong friendship, but by their perceived underdog status. There was this sense of being outsiders, like Andy Hampston or Greg LeMond, even if the two of them had been at the forefront of European cycling for a while already and were fairly embedded in the French and Belgian cycling scene, says O'Brien. There was a certain feeling of us against the world. They wanted to prove that they were two of the best, if not the best riders around. Any differences they had was water under the bridge come September. Kelly and Roach actually arrived at the Worlds by bike, choosing to ride the 120 kilometres to Valach from Gimona, where they had been competing at the Giro del Friuli. They were staying at the Swish Hotel Piber at the expense of their pro teams, along with Martin Early and Kimmage, the remaining two of the team that inevitably became known as the Fab Four. There was, in fact, a fifth man who rode for Ireland that day but he is often overlooked. Alan McCormack was an amateur rider who had made the journey all the way from Boulder, Colorado, via Boston and Vienna. He stayed in a hotel in the centre of town, which he described as a prison, and openly told reporters that he was there to ride for himself and not in the service of Kelly and Roach, who earned much more than him and who had not offered him any financial incentive. The Irish team had no manager, and the rough plan, at least initially, was to ride for Kelly. 
As the cycling news journalist Barry Ryan explains in his book, The Ascent, Sean Kelly, Stephen Roach and the rise of Irish cycling's golden generation, they knew there was no point in devising a more detailed scheme when the 12-man squads from Italy, Belgium and France would inevitably dictate the terms of engagement. Reflecting on their tactics, Early tells Ryan, You can't talk tactics with five guys. I think the idea was just to hang on as long as possible and to try to help Kelly. But when the Fab Four wreckied the course on the Thursday, McCormack's train from Vienna did not arrive until late on the Friday, Roach began to question the consensus that this was a race for the fast men. All of the talk of it being a flat circuit and one that suited the sprinters was off the mark, he says in his autobiography, The Agony and the Ecstasy. It was a circuit for strongmen, essentially like Sean and Moreno Argentine, but I knew that I would go okay on such a circuit. It was here, two days before the race, that Roach rediscovered his mojo. Heavy showers greeted the 168 riders at the start of the 269km race, which featured 23 laps of a lumpy 11.7km circuit that contained two short climbs and some portions of 10% gradients. A reduced bunch finish was expected, with the defending champion Moreno Argentine deemed the race favourite by most journalists. Italy also had Guido Bontempi as backup, while Dutch duo Turn van Vliet and Steven Rooks, the Belgian Eric van der Aderen, Germany's Rolf Goltz and Denmark's Rolf Sorensen were also seen as possible threats to Kelly's chances. Severe rain and slippery conditions kept the pace slow and dulled much of the interest over the first half of the course, with Portugal's Orlando Neves the only attacker. He built up a lead of two minutes but was reeled in with 75 kilometres remaining as the rain eased and the battle of attrition came to an end. A dangerous break of four soon formed, including Juan Fernandez of Spain, Argentine and Van Vliet. Roach told McCormack to lend him a hand to close the gap, but there was never any formal agreement between the two, no carrot to go with the stick, and Ireland's fifth man was wary of burying himself for someone else. But McCormack lasted only one more lap before pulling up to watch the finale on TV in the makeshift Irish tent. And what a finale it was. Early and Kimmage put in huge shifts to bring the race back together and neutralise the threat posed by the Argentine quartet. The Italian was something of a bete noir for Roach, having twice used all his trademark cunning to get the better of him in Liège-Baston-Liège. When Early joined McCormack in the pits with two laps remaining, Kelly and Roach combined with Canada's Steve Bauer to drag a chase group back to the leaders. This was followed by a brief lull in which the pace slowed ahead of the final lap, with a peloton of around 70 riders crossing the line as the bell rang. With Kelly in his wake, Roach kept the pace high on the hill at the start of the final lap, keen to tire out the remaining sprinters. Going over the top, there were just 13 riders left in contention. Only the Dutch, with three riders, outnumbered the Irish. The attacks then came thick and fast, with Dutchman Brukink and Van Vliet particularly aggressive. Roach's aggression had managed to shed the likes of van der Raderen and Bentempi, but not his old foe Argentine, the defending champion. The Italian, however, had pinpointed Kelly as the man to watch and took it upon himself to stick to his wheel and goad his rival. If it came down to a reduced sprint, Kelly and Argentine shoot out head and shoulders above the rest. 
This meant the others had no choice but to alter the script, forcing the two Irishmen to take turns covering the moves. As Kelly recalls to Ryan in The Ascent, I said to Stephen, look, the only thing to do here is one of us goes with one attack and the other goes with the next attack. I went with at least two or maybe three times with attacks. I'd get a little bit ahead and then I'd be closed down and then Roach would go with the next one. Roach went with one, they looked at each other behind and that was the one. With just one kilometre to go, Van Vliet had zipped clear. Roach and Galt latched on, with Sorensen and the Swiss Guido Winterberg making it five out ahead. Everyone in the chase group was looking to Kelly to react. But Kelly knew that any response by him could reopen the door to Argentine and deny both Irish riders the spoils. The Italian goaded Kelly, sat on his wheel and told him he had thrown away his chances of gold. Roach later described the moment in his autobiography. I looked behind and could see they were stalling. I became anxious. I wondered what was happening. How could Kelly lose contact at this stage? What I didn't know was that Kelly and Argentine were having their own private battle of nerves, Kelly refusing to lead the pursuit of a breakaway group that included his teammate, Argentine refusing to lead Kelly because he feared Kelly would then beat him in the sprint. For O'Brien, Kelly's sang Freud in the face of Argentine's provocation was an indication of what a shrewd operator he was. You never know the truth, says O'Brien, but the story goes that Argentine was mocking him when the move went, toying with him, trying to make him work to pull it back. Kelly didn't rise to the bait, knowing that his teammate was up the road. Meanwhile, Roach had a dilemma of his own. He didn't have the same kick as Van Vliet or Goltz, and he had no desire to finish the Worlds with another bronze medal. So, turning a big gear, he threw the dice and went early, with 500 metres remaining. He passed Sorensen, Van Vliet and Goltz. Winterberg cottoned on, but didn't have the legs. They all hesitated, and in that instant, lost all chances of the victory. Further back, the penny suddenly dropped for Argentine. Maybe Kelly wasn't Ireland's man after all. He finally responded, but left it way too late. Glancing under his arm with 300 metres remaining, Roach got what he would describe as the most beautiful surprise of my life. Argentine was closing in, but he was going to run out of road. The Italian would be forced to settle for the medal that matched his name, with Fernandez taking bronze to deny Galtz the final place on the podium. Finishing four bike lengths ahead, Roach raised his arms in celebration at winning the Worlds and completing an unlikely triple crown after what he would describe as the best single-day effort of my career. Kelly, meanwhile, punched the air in disbelief, beaming as if he had finally won the rainbow jersey as he came home for what was arguably the best fifth place in the history of the World Championships. Despite the smiles, the final piece in Roach's triple crown jigsaw was clearly a bittersweet occasion for Kelly, who, interviewed at the finish by Irish reporters, admitted, Naturally, I'm a bit disappointed. I would have liked to have won. As Barry Ryan writes, Kelly had been Ireland's standard bearer for a decade, and now, in the space of one summer, Roach had carried off cycling's three biggest prizes, a treble that had been achieved only by Eddie Merckx. Years on, speaking to Ryan, 
Kelly is more philosophical about the turn of events that day. It could have been the other way around. It could have been that I was in the move that stuck. It would have been with Argentine, of course, because he was on my wheel all the time. But that's the way it goes. If Kelly was in his pomp in 1987, he no doubt felt that he would have many more opportunities to secure the rainbow jersey in his career. By the same token, Kelly's very presence in that lead group in Valach made it possible for Roach to win. With this in mind, O'Brien recalls watching the 2013 World Championships with the Portuguese team in total disbelief as the Spanish duo of Alejandro Valverde and Joaquim Rodriguez threw the race away and let Rui Costa ride off with the win. For O'Brien, it's to Kelly's credit that the 1987 Worlds did not end with a similar scenario for the Irish. It can't have been easy for Kelly to keep his cool and refuse to chase. Credit to him, that ability to hold your nerve and watch the race get away from you doesn't happen an awful lot in cycling, he says. There's such a fine line between knowing when to stop playing poker and making that gamble. You look very smart when it pays off, but all too often you look like a complete fool for not jumping and reacting to it. Kelly played his cards just right that day. And that's not to take anything away from Roach, who had the strength and tactical nous to do his bit and work with the excellent hand dealt to him by his loyal teammate. In that sense, Roach's victory was very much a victory for them both, and above all, a victory for Ireland. It was an unusual occurrence in cycling in that there was a genuine happiness that they had won as a team, says O'Brien. A lot of riders say, oh, we work for the team and it's a team sport, but privately, that's not always the case. With them, I think it definitely was. Roach was an elevated plan B in a finale that was perfectly executed by the Irish. Right to the final kilometre, the commentators that day still saw Kelly as the danger man. Everyone was watching the multiple monument winner, and they took their eye off the rider least suited to pulling off the win. The guys who were up there towards the finish were all big sprinters and classics guys who would have fancied their chances on a course like that, says O'Brien. But the smaller guy, a better climber who had won two Grand Tours already that year, I think they thought that he was totally cooked, and that he was no Eddie Merckx. The unlikeliness of someone winning a Giro, a Tour and a Worlds, and the improbability of it being someone like Stephen Roach, and not being a Greg LeMond or someone universally recognised as being the best of a generation, I think it probably just wouldn't have dawned on a lot of directors that this guy could do it. So, what happened next? A few weeks later, Ireland's two cycling superstars lined up at the Tour of Ireland as Roach gave his rainbow jersey its first outing. It was a 1-2 for the home riders, but this time, Kelly came out on top. Moreno Argentine then picked himself up by winning the Giro di Lombardia two weeks later, but Kelly had the last laugh in their ongoing rivalry by denying him, in 1992, the Milan San Remo victory the Italian coveted badly. When Argentine attacked over the Poggio, Kelly led the chase over the summit and put in one of the sport's most daredevil descents to peg back his rival before outfoxing him on the Via Roma for his second victory in La Primavera. It was the last big win of his career. 
We tell the story of Kelly's plunge off the Poggio to win in San Remo in episode 2 of this season's Recycle series. Kelly admits that he never forgave Argentine for his negative tactics in the 1987 Worlds, how he latched on to Kelly's every move, sticking to him like a persistent mosquito. Roche's win was a welcome tonic, but Kelly always regretted the circumstances. I did think of that when I was on the Poggio, Kelly admits. This guy, how he hurt my final of that World Championships. I think that pushed me that little bit more to try and catch him and beat him. That was something of a sore point with me after that Worlds. A closure of sorts for Kelly, for whom the Rainbow Bands would always prove a step too far. He came close in 1989, finishing third again behind Greg LeMond at Chambry, and then took fifth in Utsumomiya in Japan in 1990. But despite being one of the best one-day riders of his generation, perhaps even of all time, Kelly never stood on the top step of the podium at the Worlds, a fact that makes his role in Valach all the more significant. Roach remains to this day the only Irishman to be crowned world champion, but he couldn't have done it without his teammate. As Roach tells Kimmage in Rough Ride, people shouldn't say that I've won this race and Sean has won that. They should look at our careers and say that between us, we have won every race on the continent worth winning. And between them, they had pretty much mopped up everything on offer. For when Kelly won the Vuelta in 1988, he completed the full house of Grand Tours for the Irish pair. Like the world title, however, the Tour of Flanders always remained elusive for Kelly, and Roach was hardly suited to the cobbled classics, so the winner of the Triple Crown was never going to complete the full house of monuments for the duo. Roach struggled to scale the heights of his monstrous 1987 season again. A move from Carrera to Robert Miller's Fajor team, where he also joined up with Britain's Sean Yates, was seemingly cursed, with Roach plagued by a recurrence of his knee injury that virtually sidelined him all year. Roach finally made his first appearance of the 1988 season at the World Championships in Ronsa, but the defending champion went through the motions to come home in 75th place as the Italian Maurizio Fondria soloed to glory. The winds dried up, as did his days as a bona fide GC cyclist. Roach managed to finish in ninth place in the Giro on two more occasions and took 14th in his one and only Vuelta in 1992. But two DNFs either side of a lowly 44th place in the 1990 Tour highlighted the sorry state of his knee and his changeable form. Back at Carrera and riding in support of Claudio Chiappucci, Roach was able to show flashes of his former self, winning a stage in the 1992 Tour and finishing in the top 10. But by now, things had moved on. This was big Miguel Indurain's era of domination. Cycling had changed, and Roach was yesterday's man. O'Brien attributes the sudden decline of his countrymen to a number of things on top of his chronic knee condition, including the change in technology and other areas of the sport that we can mention or choose to ignore. As such, he asks of Ireland's groundbreaking Worlds victory in 1987, was that the early days of modern cycling or the end days of the old ways? I suppose it's probably a bit of both. While it's harsh to reduce Roach's victory in Valach to a case of the stars aligning for the man who had already won the Giro and the Tour in the same season, it's also fair to say that he was never as consistent over his entire season as the man who made his world's victory possible. King Kelly was a winning machine, 
his first tour stage victory coming in 1978 and his last monument triumph in 1992. Roach, by contrast, had a tiny window through which he concentrated his rainbow prism of light in 1987 to glorious effect. He was the man who, according to Phil Liggett in the Valach commentary box, eclipsed the world with his magic legs that year. Kelly was, if not the bigger talent, the much more dependable throughout his career, says O'Brien, whereas Roach was mercurial in that sense. But you don't fluke your way to a triple crown. If that were possible, it would have happened more than twice. This has been another episode of Recycle by Eurosport, written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos. Produced by Pete Burton. You can read more from Felix on Twitter at Saddleblaze. You can find me at Graham Wilgos. You can find Pete beeping out the swear words on the latest episode of The Bradley Wiggins Show. Meanwhile, you can catch up with the latest cycling scenes with Eurosport on Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK. Plus, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you've enjoyed this or any other episode, please do subscribe, share and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back for our final run of the season and the Vuelta España. We're winding back the clock to 1970 and the first and only Spanish Grand Tour win of Luis Acaña's colourful career. 